Shalom, and welcome to the Israel Policy Pod. I'm Neri Zilber, a journalist based in Tel Aviv and a policy advisor to Israel Policy Forum. As most of you probably know, we're entering the most Israeli week of the calendar this week, with Memorial Day for Israel's fallen already upon us as we record, followed right after by Independence Day, which this year is marking 75 years, Israel's Diamond Jubilee. And yes, I had to look that up. To help us make sense of where Israel stands on the eve of this milestone birthday, we have back with us Israel Policy Forum's very own Chief Policy Officer, Michael Koplow, and Shir Afron, IPF's Diane and Guilford Glazer Foundation Director of Policy Research. But first, a few thoughts from me. So we'll get into the ongoing protest movement and Middle East geopolitics and Israel's 75th birthday in just a second with Michael and Shira. But I wanted to get into the current state of play, basically what we're looking at for the coming week here in Israel. And again, we're recording this on Monday night, Memorial Day Eve. So number one, Memorial Day on Tuesday, when many bereaved families and regular citizens flock to military cemeteries to pay their respects to Israel's fallen. This year, a huge uproar has engulfed this most solemn and holy of days, given the government's judicial overhaul plans. While the protest movement against those plans uh, and the protest groups have said they will not officially demonstrate either tonight or tomorrow, out of respect for the fallen, many bereaved families have indicated that they'll oppose the arrival to the cemeteries of government ministers and coalition lawmakers, and already we've seen a slew of government officials actually cancel their attendance at various ceremonies at cemeteries throughout the country. Uh, some officials, though, have conspicuously refused to cancel, including Itamar Ben-Vir, who will be in Beersheba tomorrow. It remains to be seen how widespread and disruptive the events tomorrow will be, but it's yet another sign of the deep divide in the country these days, especially on this, again, most solemn and holy of days. Uh, number two, Independence Day on Wednesday. So the protest movement is actually planning on demonstrating and protesting starting Tuesday night with a huge street party slash demonstration in Tel Aviv and continuing, according to my information, into Wednesday morning and through the day, including by the Army Reservist protest group. We'll see what actually transpires. Uh, it usually is a big national holiday, after all, with uh, concerts and barbecues and family trips and parties. Uh, but we may have a situation at least on Tuesday night and maybe even to Wednesday, where the official and historic Independence Day state ceremonies and other ceremonies uh, could be disrupted by protesters and or that the TV stations will have a split screen with the official ceremony on one side and the street demonstrations in Tel Aviv on the other side. Truly uh, remarkable and, again, unprecedented turn of events here in Israel. Uh, and by the way, side addendum, the Israeli right and pro-government forces are planning their own demonstration for Thursday, the day after Independence Day, in Jerusalem, which they're dubbing the million-person protest. It to be seen again how many people actually show up and whether it passes by and remains peaceful. And finally, number three, the security situation and possible further terror attacks and other military escalations. So already earlier today, there was a car ramming attack in Jerusalem uh, near the Mahane Yehuda market. We have to also remember that last year on Independence Day, there was a particularly gruesome knife and axe attack in the city of Elad, uh, which claimed the lives of four people. 
And we also have to keep in mind that the past few weeks and months, as I'm sure you all remember, have seen an escalation in terror attacks and rocket fire, although it has been relatively, again, stressing relatively calm the last two weeks. So hopefully this tail end of this holiday period continues in that same vein. Let's get to Michael and Shira. Hi, Michael. Hi, Shira. How are you both? Uh, Last time we spoke was over a month ago before the holidays. So now we're nearing after the holidays. Uh, How was the last few weeks for for both of you? Hi, guys. Um, The last few weeks were pretty good. It was nice to have a bit of a Passover break. I spent it uh, half of it with my wife's family, half of it with my family, and uh, you know, thankfully, fam- family fighting was was kept to a minimum. That's always good, and uh, it was it was good to it was good to recharge a little bit, even even as obviously things were still pretty busy in Israel. Uh, so it wasn't uh, it certainly wasn't it certainly wasn't uh, a week and a half off or, or, or a vacation, but uh, it was good to have a little bit of downtime. That's nice to hear, Shira. What about you? Hi, Mary. Hi, Michael. Um, you know, it's uh, it's it's been just a week, uh, but it, it 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 feels like a lifetime ago. We were we spent um, uh, Passover Pesach in the gluten country of Italy, um, <laughs> which was really uh, beautiful and 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 nice. Um, we complained one day about you know rain, but every time we were complaining, we were just reading the news from Israel, and um, there were. There was a heat wave and there was a flood and people drowned in their cars in the Arava. And then um, there were rockets from Lebanon. So <laughs> it was, you know, a, a quite a quite a dissonance between our personal experience being away, but the news that kept uh, flooding us from Israel. And, you know, the moment we're recording now is just uh, uh, minutes after the Yom Zikaron. Uh, Memorial Day, the siren, the moment of silence. So, um, you know, the break was great, but um, but we're we're back to reality and to uh, quite a painful day, you know, in Israel. Yes, uh, nothing brings you back down to earth and to the reality of Israel uh, like Memorial Day here. Um, no matter how many times you go through it through the years, it's a uh, it's a very powerful day and. Uh, we're recording this Memorial Day Eve, Monday evening, uh, like you said, Shira, right after the moment of silence with the sirens going off. And then tomorrow morning, there'll also be a two-minute siren. Uh, yes, and a lot of uh, uh, news reports of uh, you know people's personal histories, bereaved families. Uh, and then tomorrow, into tomorrow, will be the ceremonies uh, at the military ceremony, cemeteries, which I uh, addressed in the introduction to this episode. Um We'll get to all that in just a minute, uh, including, by the way, the big event of this week, the special event, Israel's 75th birthday. But I want to start, since I have both of you here, with the latest news about the uh, anti-judicial coup, anti-government protest movement, and specifically uh, a new wrinkle, the demonstrations we've seen here in Israel since late last week at various uh, Jewish diaspora events and conferences uh, meant to celebrate uh, the milestone birthday for the state of Israel. Uh, so we're talking about disruptions last week 
at the World Zionist Congress, and then in recent days, Jewish Agency Board meetings, the General Assembly of North American Jewish Federations, conferences. I hope I'm getting all these names correct. Michael, you can correct me if I'm not. Uh, so basically, lots of protests both inside these events and definitely outside these events, as we saw yesterday uh, in North Tel Aviv. Michael, I want to start with you. Uh, what do you make of all this? Uh, we're in, you know, outwardly the judicial overhaul, the judicial coup here in Israel is an internal domestic issue, but it has reached in a big way the highest levels of organized Jewish diaspora life. What do you think? Mary, maybe we should have a regular Israel policy pod feature where I quiz you on the alphabet soup of American Jewish organizations. I can like throw out four four acronyms and you can tell me which one is made up. That's I will, a good one. I will fail miserably <laughs> at that test. I love it. Yeah, well, uh, maybe, maybe, maybe we'll save that for uh, for a week when there's less going on. We can all have some fun. So, you know, the the protests in Israel and the way in which they're converging with these big gatherings, and, and particularly the JFNA General Assembly this week, is interesting because, on the one hand, I'm certain that if you were to poll American Jews, and maybe somebody has done this, and I just haven't seen it, but I'm certain if you were to poll American Jews given where their general politics lie, they would be supportive of the protests in Israel and they would be supportive of the effort to either stop the judicial overhaul or have to be the subject of some form of compromise between the government and the opposition. And so my guess is that most American Jews and, and probably most people who are at the GA are broadly supportive of the types of things the protesters want. But there's definitely, a, obviously, a gap between Israelis and between American Jews. And I think that while I'm, I'm not in Israel now, I'm, I'm not at the GA, uh, I have you know read, read reports and I've spoken to a bunch of people who are there. And I think that um, it's probably not always landing the same way that the protesters want. So, you know, I, I've, I've seen these reports and spoken to friends who are telling me about the protesters being there and, and handing out flowers and um, WhatsApp groups where, where they're talking about uh, offering all the visiting American Jews hugs. And I'm sure for some people that's landing exactly as they want it to land. And for other American Jews who are there, you know, if you walk in and you see signs, people holding up signs that say Bouchard, and that's meant to refer to the judicial overhaul, but Maybe you think that's meant to refer to you, right? Uh, you know, maybe you see a sign that says shame on it and you think it's talking about uh, American Jews at the GA. So I'm, I'm sure that there is some lost in translation stuff going on. And then we also, and of course, uh, should also be said that um, the types of American Jews who are, you know, super involved in Israel issues, who, who attend something like the GA in Israel and who are there for, uh, for Yom Matzmaut, Israel's 75th birthday, are probably also the same types of American Jews who want to be there to celebrate Israel right now, irrespective of everything else going on. I'm sure many are going to protest, but, but probably there are also many uh, who really want to be there and, and see this as a moment of celebration and don't necessarily want it to be a moment of political discord or a moment of protest or 
moment to sort of highlight some of the difficulties Israel is going through. So I'm sure there's there's some of that as well. And then finally, there's this issue of Prime Minister Netanyahu, who was supposed to address the GA and now is not. And, you know, it's it's I don't think there's any definitive way of saying what happened there. Um, you know, I, I suspect I suspect that facing the prospect of thousands of Israelis protesting outside, there are probably people within JFNA that are pleased that Prime Minister Netanyahu is not showing up because they think that maybe that avoids some chaos. And, you know, maybe maybe they even kind of asked him, asked him maybe not to come. And it's possible that Prime Minister Netanyahu uh, just did this on his own. And it's a sign of the fact that he doesn't have a huge amount of respect for North American Jews and doesn't necessarily view them as, as critical to him. And it's more important for him not to stand there facing protesters than it is to address this group of not only American Jewish dignitaries, for lack of a better term, but people in the American Jewish community who are you know, super users, the most committed to Israel, the types of folks who uh, who join federation boards and who spend all the time fundraising for, for, for JFNA and for local federations, which, by the way, for anybody who's not familiar, should be said that federations are, are generally across the board politically in terms of the people who are involved in them. You look at either JFNA board or local federations board, and it's people who are on the far right and people who are on the far left. It's not seen as a, as a partisan thing like other, like other pro-Israel organizations are. It's really the umbrella for helping local Jewish communities and also just supporting Israel. So it's not, it's not a political thing. And so, um, Dafka to uh, say, I'm not going to speak to this group out of all of them, uh, I think probably cuts across more demographics than any other group that Netanyahu could choose to address or not address. So whatever whatever the real story is there, I'll just say that from the outside looking in, even if let's say that JFNA decided maybe better for him not to show up and they kind of you know negotiated behind the scenes and I'm not, I have no idea if that happened or not, um, from the outside looking in, it certainly can be portrayed as yet another Netanyahu snub against the American Jewish community. And ultimately, whether it's that or whether it's the fact that he's just not going to address them for you know, reasons that are perhaps better than snubbing American Jews, it's still not a great look. And it says something that's not good about Israel diaspora relations in this moment. I think it's probably the latter that he canceled his appearance, which had been scheduled because he didn't want to face both protesters outside and definitely protesters inside. And I I should add, probably not just Israeli protesters, that he didn't want these video images of American Jews and diaspora Jews uh, shouting at him, shame, uh, to be relayed especially to Israelis. Uh, one of his calling cards, obviously, for many years, if not decades, has been uh, his mastery uh, in his mind, I think, of uh, foreign relations and foreign ties, uh, especially with with America. Uh, so I think he wanted to avoid that. And I think that's probably why he canceled. But I, I, I must say, um, and I do want to talk about the protest movement in a second, but I think um, the outcome of Netanyahu not showing up, I think, I think it's positive for everyone, to be honest. Uh, first of all, it's positive for the protest movement because they achieved what they wanted to achieve, right? 
the idea is, and we could talk about it, but the idea is disruption. The idea is not to legitimize this government and the prime minister. Uh, I think for Netanyahu himself, it's also a face-saving measure. I understand that it can look like offensive that he doesn't care about this audience, but I think honestly, anyone who will be listened to him will be willing to listen to him outside of Channel 14, which is you know the Israeli version of Fox News, um, would be welcome. I think it's no coincidence that he only gives interviews to U.S. media. Um, um, uh, or English media, English-speaking media. So I don't think it's not caring. Um, I think it's just face-saving measure, just not to, not to to as you said, Neri, not 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 to face those demonstrations. And I think, honestly, for the organizers of the event, right? It's it's it would have been complicated for them to be there with the prime ministers of Israel and who knows what was planned for him. I don't know um, if you I know Nair, you've seen it, but you know what what um, uh, Simcha Rothman, who's not the prime minister, what kind of reception he got. He was ambushed with people who walked into the 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 the, the one of the events where he spoke, wearing you know bottom button down shirts, and they took off their shirts and <laughs> ended up with a protest from the crowd. So I think no one wanted this with the prime minister. Right, because this is a moment of celebration. So I actually think it's, uh, to be honest, it's a positive outcome for for everyone involved. Um, and he did everyone he did everyone, including himself, a favor. I think. Um, but but the goal is right, and I understand Michael is correct. There is some lost in translation what this is about. But the protest movement, um, in in it has different manifestations, right? The protest has different manifestations, but the idea of, of protesting uh, in front of elected officials, in front of, you know, the, the, the prime minister, the ministers, members of this coalition, everywhere, anywhere, at all times, this is, one of, this is part of the strategy. It, the idea is disruption. We are going to disrupt you. We're not going to legitimize you. We're not going to let you speak. And, you know, more so when it's a celebration with uh, Americans that we, what the protest movement said, wait, you pretend to share values with our best friend, the United States of America, but actually you're trying to shatter those values uh, based on which this relationship, you know, this, 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 this relationship exists. So don't pretend, and we're not going to let you pretend. Um, so this was, you know, it's 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 difficult to watch, and it's not a c- c- celebratory, right? It's we're not celebrating Israel in a sense. Although I'd argue this is some some sort of a celebration of of democracy and 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 the shared values, and 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 you know, Neri, you and I uh, both um, attended some of these meetings and the meetings between the American groups that are here and and Israelis, and you see the connection, and you see the energy in the room, and 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 I think it has, uh, it is very. Um, very powerful, and and I'll just end with this. Uh, Shikma Bressler, who is one of the, um, uh, I guess, protest <laughs> the protest movement, and she runs the Kaplan show, you know, the big uh, uh, protest in Tel Aviv every week, but she's done much more than that. Uh, you know, she said basically that if you look at different types of, of protests, right, they're the really nice ones with just like singing and the children, and this is good and it's very mainstream and it helps. And there's the types of the violent protests, which, which this part is not, is not about. And there's the violent, there's, sorry, there's the nonviolent, but impolite protests. And this is the most effective one. Yes. And, 
This is what this is about. It's impolite. The middle, the middle of the way between. But it's nonviolent. It's very peaceful, but it's impolite. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think this is part of the goal, and you know, it is working, right? It, I, in the meantime, it has stopped from from the worst outcome to materialize so far. Yeah, uh, I think it's a very uplifting moment as a listener to this podcast uh know of recent weeks i think uh the fact that netanyahu was forced to call a timeout uh a few weeks ago was was a huge victory for the protest movement but uh, uh and by the way uh this moment especially for diaspora jews and, and israelis it's a moment of championing uh liberal democracy liberal democracy and uh, i just want everyone listening to posit a hypothetical for a second, let's say the judicial overhaul agenda, this radical agenda had never come into our lives. Right now we'd be quote unquote celebrating Israel's 75th birthday still with the most right wing, far right, you know, religious government in Israeli history with all the cast of characters and senior ministerial posts. And that would have been, I think, uh, a real moment of crisis, a real moment of crisis, especially for diaspora Israel relations. Uh, and now everyone, uh, especially many of the attendees over this past weekend and recent days, as Sharon, you said, you know, you and I met them. Uh, it's actually a very uplifting moment in diaspora-Israel relations uh, that people come here, uh, like we said right before we started recording, Shira, that uh, you come here and you can uh, grab a, a nice meal in the Karma Market in Tel Aviv, and some people go to Jerusalem, and uh, you know, you can travel to the Dead Sea and all of that, and get some beach time on the Mediterranean. Uh, but you also definitely have to go to a demonstration on Kaplan Street or anywhere else in Israel. And I think that uh, that's, says a lot uh, about how important this moment is for, for uh, Jews from the diaspora visiting Israel. I have another um, a couple of friends visiting from, from, from the States, and, and she's, she's, she's a very close friend, but she's from a Russian origin, lives now in America, and she asked me to write her... Um, uh, how you know, sort of the transliteration of what to shout in the protest, the big protest, uh, Yom Atzmaut Independence Day party, <laughs> so she can pronounce it right. <laughs> so, Very you know, not just representative of the Jewish uh, movement, right? It's just visitors, and it's interesting and 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 nice, you know, it's uh, um, how sustainable this is, uh, what it means about diaspora Israeli ties, right? At the end of the day, they are coming to protest on something that's largely. I guess I don't want to shoot myself in the foot here, but it's largely a domestic issue. Um, but 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 it is um, uplifting and creating connections that at least I have not seen in a long time uh, between the communities, and this is just a positive thing. And by the way, I'm I'm sure there's something nice for American Jews who are there to feel like Israelis need them. Where American Jews are so used to feeling from Israelis as if. We're kind of irrelevant, you know, it's fine, come visit and, and spend some money and, and that's all great, but we don't really care what you think. And I'm sure there are plenty of folks at the GA and, and plenty of American Jews in Israel right now who see protesters who are appealing to them and saying, you know, stand with us in solidarity and help us how you can, uh, that that feel that feel as if they are both both needed and wanted in a way that perhaps Many haven't felt from Israelis and certainly from Israeli governments in a long time. <laughs> yeah, uh, I agree with that. I agree with that. Uh, just a follow-up question in terms of the current moment and the protest movement and this whole issue of the judicial overhaul. Uh, I mentioned 
in the intro to the episode, all the protests and demonstrations planned for this week uh, over Memorial Day and Independence Day. But next week, the Knesset is back for its summer session. Uh, and in theory, the, the timeout, quote unquote, that uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu declared uh, for the judicial overhaul right before the holiday period uh, could come to an end. Um, and I say in theory because talks are still ongoing at the president's residence uh, between the opposition and the coalition. Uh, and obviously, too, the protest movement is very much still ongoing. So predictions, Shira, you first. What do you think will be the ultimate fate of the judicial overhaul agenda uh, for this current government? What do you think will happen? I think the, the, the judicial overhaul, right, what we, we sort of the doomsday weapon, the, the, the actual um, intention, the way it was supposed to take place, I think it's dead. There's no way it's going to take place. And, you know, you hear it from briefings uh, by, by everyone. Um, there are some, and I, I won't go into sort of the mechanics of that, but there are some ways that by... Um, elections to the um, association, right? Is this the Bar Association? Uh, this association of attorneys who have... The lawyer syndicate. Yeah. Um, that you... Trying to split the vote there, that uh, Yariv Levine Likud ally would be elected and he will ensure that the representatives are um, in favor of the coalition candidates. So it's not having sort of a, a clear majority for the coalition structurally uh, in, in the, in, in, you know, so which would undermine the judicial independence, uh, but achieving the same outcome uh, through other means. And that is definitely an option. So that's definitely, definitely an option. But I think the whole idea of, uh, of, of, of undermining uh, the courts as we've seen it um, clearly, and, and they admitted it, um, this is not going to go ahead as planned. Uh, we're still not off the hook, though. First of all, you know, they can come back in more sophisticated ways. It's not over. No one canceled it formally. We can get to a compromise um, there could be a compromise um, that, that 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 undermines uh, the judicial independence and the democracy just slightly, not completely. Um, this could be a suspense for next time. We can also uh, we also need to remember that um, we focus very much on a big sort of the, you know the big rocks, right? Like those big laws that will, will really turn Israel from the democracy it is now to, to something else. Uh, but there are 153 uh, uh, bills in different different um, stages of legislation. And many, many, many of them are not, you know... Uh, are, are not great either. Ironic, right. It's uh, undermining uh, freedom of expression and religious pluralism and, and so many other things that we should be talking about. And I think this is part of why the protests continue, right? It's not just about um, how many uh, coalition members sit in the, 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 the committee that selects judges. It's not just that. It's everything about this coalition. Everything that it tries to promote has an agenda that... Um, that stands in, in counter to the spirit of, of, of a, a Jewish democratic Israel. 
everything. And uh, and if you look at uh, look also at the priorities, which I think is part of what's upsetting us all, you look at their very ambitious agenda to change, really to change the nature of this country. And 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 there's no other way of uh, describing it. I think you both agree. Um, but uh, but what they managed to pass so far is uh, are laws that would allow the prime minister to receive gifts, uh, allow exoneration. Try they try to pass <laughs> laws that would exonerate 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 right non amnesty exonerate um, um, uh, corrupted politicians. Um, and, uh, and, and, and others that have nothing to do with people's day-to-day lives. In, inflation is, a, is, you know, up the roof. Uh, people are losing their jobs. Israel's uh, uh, credit rating has not been downgraded, but the forecast is, has been downgraded. Um, uh, they might have to raise taxes. Security. Right. We're talking about security risks, right? It was rockets from Lebanon. Lebanon? And Gaza and terrorist attacks. We just had one today in the market and in Machna Yehuda. And instead of focusing on these things, this government focuses on their own uh, benefits uh, and waiting uh, to promote their their agenda. So you know, I, I mean, it's not a forecast forecast, but I think this is fundamentally is not going to change. Uh, they're not going to achieve you know the full enchilada as as, as they would say. Uh, but they're definitely like continuing to, um, to, to, um, this, they have not changed their ambitions. That's right. So basically your point is they haven't changed their overall ambitions and they also haven't changed the fundamental character of this type of government. Right. The right. Right. They're just the not very good at promoting it. Yeah. Uh, I mean the fact that they're, Thankfully. The, yeah, the fact that they made a huge strategic error with this judicial overhaul and how they rolled it out and all of that, that's, uh. That's been very clear. Right. And and what they have not anticipated, and no one has, right? And this is the beauty that's, that's the positive. And I'm curious what Michael has to say about this. But, but I mean, it's not just that their failure in the strategic way they, they did it, but but no one anticipated the backlash, right? Yeah. Nobody ex- We've been year, for years speaking about, oh, but we know the moderates, pragmatic Israelis, and we know the majority of the public is pro-democracy and pro-rights and even pro separation from the Palestinians, not something we, you know, talk about so much uh, these days. But we know we're like, where, where are they? Where were they? And they're, they, you know, they woke up. This, this, this awoke them up, which, which no one anticipated. Um, they haven't, not neither Yari Levy nor Rothman or Bibi, but, but no one else on the other side either. Yeah, they're not on the streets. Uh, Michael, what's your prediction for starting next week when the Knesset gets back into session? I agree with Shira that it seems to be difficult foreseeing this going forward exactly as they wanted to before, just given the the magnitude and length of the protests and what we saw with reservists and the general strike and, and everything that led Netanyahu to pause it. On the other hand, you know, you th- this week you have, or last week you have Yariv Lavin saying, you know, nothing's changed. We're, we're, we're doing this anyway. And you have Netanyahu urging people to come out for this, you know, alleged million man march this Thursday, um, which is supposed to be a, a protest in favor of judicial overhaul. And so the folks in the government, they're they're not trying to tamp down expectations. In some ways, they're trying to keep expectations for this just as high and now to get their people out into the streets as well in favor of it. So it doesn't look as if they're ready to drop this. It looks as if they're just trying to change some of the fundamentals on the ground 
to then give them a case for moving forward or to make it easier for them to move forward. I think that Netanyahu's got, he has conflicting problems here. Uh, on the one hand, there's all, all the things that, that led to it to be suspended, and it's obviously deeply unpopular, even if even if you know nothing about polling of Israelis on how they feel on these issues, you just look at the political polls where the coalition, which has 64 seats now, would have 52 seats if you had an election tomorrow and Likud would go from 32 to as low as 24. And that's obviously a political disaster. On the other hand, I'm pretty confident that, and may, I don't know, maybe, maybe you guys share this assessment, maybe you don't, but I'm pretty confident that if Netanyahu came out tomorrow and said, I'm I'm suspending this permanently. We're not going to move forward with this. But Salas Motrich would quit the government. I, I, I don't think that I don't think that he would have any desire to stick around. And I also think that there'd be pressure on him from his base to leave. You know, you know we already we already saw a statement uh, today from Regavim, which is very much Salas Motrich's base, saying that this government has failed because uh, because they're not going to remove Khan Al Ahmar. So I, I don't think that Smotrich, given the way in which he's raised the stakes on this, Smotrich and Simcha Rotman can just stick around business as usual if Netanyahu drops this. And so what I expect is that Netanyahu is going to do what he's done in the past on <laughs> almost every single other issue, which is just not make a decision and kick the ball down the road as much as he can. And you know, not not announce an end to the negotiations under Bougie Herzog's auspices, but say negotiations are ongoing and try to slow play things and basically buy time to figure out what other options are available to him. I don't think he can do that indefinitely. I think that if he if he buys too much time and just doesn't do anything, he is going to risk Smotrich leaving his coalition. But I don't think he's going to make any type of definitive decision or announcement when this pause ends and the Knesset is back in session, I think he's going to do what he can to try to shift the fundamentals on the ground. But he's going to postpone and postpone and postpone and just hope that he can ride this out and that you know somehow a solution will present itself down the road, which is really how he's spent his entire political career on, on most things. Yeah, um, I think that's probably the honest answer that I don't even think Bibi Netanyahu knows precisely what is going to be the fate of this judicial uh, reform slash overhaul agenda. Uh I will say, though, that I think for the coming month, given just the heat and level of vitriol and demonstrations uh, of recent months, also international concern and condemnation coming down on Israel and the economic damage, uh, and first and most importantly, they have to pass a budget by the end of May that will likely be okay for the coming month. That's my sense. And then after they pass a budget, uh, if and when they pass a budget uh, and the government is more secure, that uh, then they'll try to figure out how to move ahead or not with various aspects of the judicial overhaul. Uh, but the grandiose plan, I agree with Shira, the grandiose plan that they laid out, that Yerivlin laid out in uh, the beginning of January is is pretty much dead in the water. And they're going to try uh, what they call the, the salami tactics, right? Pass a, something small here, right. something small there, uh, and maybe even into the fall. Uh, it, it struck me that the one person actually downplaying expectations uh, right now is actually Bibi Netanyahu himself. That exactly that in it, I don't know I, I'm sure you you two did not uh, catch his hour long interview on Channel 14 the other night. Uh, I I did. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I sat and watched the entire thing. It was actually uh, fascinating television because the reception he received on Channel 14, which is 
um, uh, his his home uh, away from home in terms of the Israeli media uh, wasn't as warm as you would expect. Uh, now the questions weren't as uh, you know hard nosed as they would have been uh, with any other Israeli media outlet, obviously. But uh, there was a lot of griping and a lot of uh, accusations hurled at the prime minister, uh, even from all these right wingers uh, on this particular show. Uh, but it, was, it struck me, just in terms of judicial overhaul, that Netanyahu uh, would commit to nothing. He didn't commit to uh, actually moving ahead with the legislation if the talks at the president's residence failed, didn't commit to that, didn't commit to any time frame, uh, actually said that there would not be an override clause, uh, which is one of the kind of big ticket items that uh, drew a lot of controversy and rightfully so. Uh, so again, he's probably just trying to lower the flames and uh, lower kind of the public protest against him that's expected. Uh, but, but it was interesting. Just to uh, just to hear it from his own mouth, Mary. Do we do we know how much longer Yair Netanyahu's exile in the United States is supposed to last? Uh, we don't know. We should ask our good friend Tal Shalev, who broke uh, that story. Uh, I'll, I'll next time she's on, hopefully soon. I'll, I'll be sure to ask her. Uh, yeah, he uh, Yair Netanyahu, uh, the son, was exiled both from the country and from social media. Uh, probably not a coincidence that it happened right after his father announced the timeout for the judicial overhaul agenda. Uh, yeah, I, I heard, I don't know if this was in the original report, I, I admit I haven't followed, but it was on both sides of the family that um, his father was upset about, you know, getting getting him into trouble with, 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 with the administration, obviously with the U.S. administration, and the mother is for losing, you know, all these uh, legal cases against him. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so... Yeah, costing the family money. Yeah, he, 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 he owes Stav Shafir quite a pile now, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, anyway, that, yeah. that's uh, yeah. This just created appetite uh, uh, for more. But I think you know, I, I don't, I don't want to say, I, I don't know what's going to happen. It's going to happen, but clearly, it's not that you said it yourself, um, uh, Neri. We hear sort of Netanyahu trying to calm people down. He's basically saying that, you know. They're not going to go ahead with with the full thing. So, but the, he can say we're not doing it, right? So, so the fact is that's going to be more of a, you know, in Hebrew we would say lemasmes it there, right? Let it the drift and give some here and some there. And and the thing is that if you look at Netanyahu, you know, Netanyahu's career and other things, he often gets to the, making the right decision, but after making a lot of mistakes on the way, and this is one where I think. Um, more in-depth analysis uh, could have uh, 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 could have projected not 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 the forecast, but really, as you said, sort of where most of Israel is on these uh, questions. And I think the the, the decision to fire uh, Defense Minister Yoav Gallant, right, is one of those. Right, you fire uh, Gallant, but you don't actually fire him, and then you keep him on the job. And I mean. This was a step that we all said, oh, he could get so upset for, for a gallant warning that the, uh, there are security implications, national security impl- implications that the cabinet needs to hear about. Uh, but he would never dare to do this because this would be such an outrageous move. So then you do it without doing it. Uh. Yeah, he made the move and then he had hundreds of thousands of Israelis that night on the streets and then followed up by the general strike. Uh, he he was left with no, no choice. Uh, I assume he... He very quickly realized it was a huge, huge mistake. Um, anyway, w- to be continued, obviously, since this is not going anywhere. Uh, but I wanted to 
move and shift slightly to a bigger issue or a bigger kind of geopolitical issue, uh, which is recent developments in the Middle East. Uh, and I know you both watch uh, these issues very closely. Uh, basically, uh, for our listeners, uh, in recent weeks, we've seen a rapprochement, a thaw, a coming together uh, between Iran and uh, its various kind of proxies and allies on the one hand, and what's often called the moderate Sunni Arab states, uh, basically Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, uh, the Gulf countries. Uh, and these Gulf countries are, of course, Israel's new besties, their new close friends uh, coming out of the Abraham Accords, uh, and many in Israel and elsewhere, we should say, uh, viewed the Israel-Gulf front as a potential alliance, an anti-Iran alliance, uh, but that, that's all being called into question. As we've seen Saudi Arabia reestablish diplomatic ties with Iran, uh, Saudi is even trying to bring uh, the Assad regime in Syria back into the Arab fold. Uh, we even saw reports of Hamas officials visiting Riyadh uh, last week. So, Michael, I wanted to start with you, since you wrote about this last week in your Coplo column. What do you make of these recent developments in the Middle East? And more to the point, and as you argued in the column, uh, why is it incorrect to view it all simply through a U.S. foreign policy prism? Uh, basically, the U.S. Or, or this view is the U.S. is to blame for everything happens in, in the Middle East. Uh, you, you took issue with that thesis. So first of all, I think it's difficult to use the same thesis to explain everything. And we see, we, we've seen some of that, right, where when... Israel was becoming closer to the Sunni Gulf states and culminated in normalization. You know, popular explanation was U.S. vacuum in the region. And so because the U.S. is absent, all these other countries are turning toward Israel uh, as the hedge against Iran. And then when the reverse happens and these countries move closer to Iran, somehow it's the exact same explanation. U.S. vacuum in the region. And so now <laughs> uh, everybody's turning to Iran because the U.S. is absent. So like it's just it's it's not credible to me that there, as i wrote last week 100% there is some us role in this but it's just not credible to me to point to every single thing that happens and say it's the us and all the more so when it's you know this notion that the us itself hasn't changed its posture um but still everything is is the fault of the us um the second thing i'd say is this process isn't new we've seen the saudis and the emiratis trying to reconcile with Iran now for a while. The Saudis and Iranians have had almost as many failed rounds of talks as, as uh, Fatah and Hamas have had for reconciliation. <laughs> so it's not, it's not like this came out of the blue. And I think that the especially post-Arab Spring, these Sunni Gulf states, they just want, they want stability. They want the region to, to be quiet. They don't view things in the same zero-sum way as Israel does with regard to Iran. They don't have the, fame, the exact same threat perception of Iran as Israel does. Right. While they certainly don't want a nuclear Iran, I don't think any of them believe that a nuclear Iran would would target them, whereas many folks in Israel believe that a nuclear Iran would indeed target Israel. And so it's a different threat perception. And from their perspective, if they can basically buy off the Iranians, you know, make nice with them, avoid Iran shooting either directly or through its proxies, cruise missiles and drones at, at their oil and gas facilities and at their shipping and um, and harass them in all sorts of ways. For them, that's a good thing. And they just want the Iranians to, to leave them alone. They don't view themselves uh, in, in the same type of existential struggle with Iran 
as Israel does, even even with kind of the the famous Sunni Shia divide. So I think they've always behaved differently in this regard. Um, they're going to continue to behave differently in this regard, and. I, I don't think it's it's certainly not entirely about the United States, and it's also not entirely about Israel. I actually, I, I don't think this is on the U.S. I don't think this is on Israel. Certainly, there's an aspect to both Israeli policy and American policy that makes it easier for these states to move closer to Iran. But they've never been looking for some big clash with Iran. They'd rather just have quiet, and this is what's going to buy them quiet. Right. Um, Shira, you've uh, traveled often to the Gulf in, in recent months. Uh, what do you think? I mean, I agree with Michael. I thought I thought it's, it's kind of ridiculous, to be honest, that Israeli uh, current and former prime ministers blame each other for this happening uh, <laughs> on their watch as if this has anything to do with Israel. I mean, we've been seeing um, rapprochement, um, uh, getting closer in ties for a good number of years now. We saw it during COVID. Uh, the threat perception is completely different there. Geography plays a difference. Um, there's populations and monies and businesses and relationships. It's it's totally different set of calculations. And I think what Michael said also, the zero-sum game and having to choose, um, it, you know, we can put it on Israel and Iran, but it's not just on Israel and Iran. It's also on the U.S. and China, right? Whereas Israel has to sort of maintain ties with China, but clearly it has to choose being with the U.S. You see with those countries that, you know, of course the U.S. is the, the, the protector of the region. It's the preference um, um, arms exporter, many other things. But no, we actually have other options. In warmly ties with China. China, China was very wise also cutting a coupon, right? Like uh, uh, mediating, uh, not really mediating, just the final, the final uh, eventual uh, ceremony there, but being showing, uh, demonstrating its power of diplomacy in the region. Um, so it's, 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 it's very different. And, and I agree with Michael 100%. It's not just about the US. It's definitely not about Israel. It's about the region. And I got to say, I mean, more diplomatic ties, de-escalation is a positive thing. <laughs> it should be viewed as a positive thing, mm -hmm. even with malign actors, right? This is the, this is the, those that you're trying to de-escalate with malign actors. Um, uh, I don't know what what this this entails for you know for Yemen and from Iraq for Iraq. I mean, really troubled countries in our region where those powers. Uh, this power play uh, is taking place, um, but but if this can bring some de-escalation, this this is positive. It's definitely positive for the U.S. and this was the response, the official response. It could also be positive for for Israel. Um, I think one concerning thing that is happening is that, and yet to play, right? Those agreements are um, are good for what they are at the moment. They have not solved the fundamental sort of problems of the region and the, and the issues between those countries. And we've seen hand in hand with those um, uh, agreements, we've also seen um, flurry of, of military activity between Iran and Russia. And a lot of the attention has been paid to what Iran, uh, how Iran has been arming Russia, uh, rightfully so, because of the war in Ukraine. Uh, which is concerning, but also we've seen a train of very sophisticated weapons going out from Russia to Iran. 
And um, as we're seeing this, I think we also need to be uh, concerned about Iran um, arming, Iran achieving very sophisticated capabilities in, in you know, in with with the uh, fighter jets. They've never had. Uh, they haven't had these capabilities in many decades, let's, let's say, right? So um, uh, moving from just asymmetric uh, warfare to having military capabilities at the moment, maybe they can deploy, but in the long time, and what this means for the region. So it's not just the nuclear issue that can bring an arms race to the region. We're, we're see uh, even the conventional uh, realm can get can get a boost and already the Middle East is a heavily export uh, importing um, uh, arms importing region and I fear that with Iran getting this boost we will see more and more uh, sophisticated weapons coming to this region and you know it can be from the US but it can also be from China very likely uh, who knows? about Russia, right? The embargo on Russia is not something that all uh, U.S. partners uh, is uh, are cooperating with. Um, so I think in, in the long run, um, we're in a lull now, and maybe there could be some de-escalation, but, but, but the security environment is, is definitely not, not safe. Okay. So potential arms race, uh, despite the diplomatic thaw in the region. I- Right. I think like, you know, maybe not immediately, but, but definitely in the medium to long, long term. Okay. Yeah. And I, I would just, I agree with Shira on the, on the not immediately. Um, the Russians are selling the Iranians advanced fighter jets and all sorts of advanced weapons, but it takes a, a while to actually get that stuff up to speed in terms of training. You think about um, just how many years in advance uh, Israel was, was training on F-35s before they got them. Um, you know, you can't you can't get an SU-35 from the Russians and, and kind of just jump into it and fly. Um, and you know, the Iranian the Iranian Air Force, in particular, is is notoriously behind the times in terms of training, in terms of decades decades old equipment. So uh, I agree with you. It's not a it's not a good development when you see even more advanced arms flooding the region on both sides. But I do think that the the reckoning and fallout from this is probably half a decade at least down the road. Got it. Um, okay. We'll be right back after this brief message. We are facing a watershed moment in Israel's history. Israel's government is disempowering the country's judiciary and dismantling its democratic system. Meanwhile, it is entrenching Israeli control over the West Bank, condemning Palestinians to a stateless future, exacerbating violence, and threatening Israel's character as a Jewish and democratic state. This moment is of existential importance to us as diaspora Jews. We must not only condemn what we oppose, but emphasize what we support. We support Israel's security, as Israelis face a deeply concerning rise in terror attacks. Meanwhile, by pursuing de facto West Bank annexation, Israel's government jeopardizes Israel's long-term security. We support Israel as the state of the Jewish people. By promoting a narrow definition of Jewish identity, Israel's government is threatening the bonds between Israel and the Jewish people. We support Israel as a democratic state. By eliminating checks and balances and removing protections for basic rights, Israel's government is threatening Israel's democratic future. As American Jews, we are essential participants in this moment of Jewish history. To disengage is to shed our responsibility. Now is the time to stand up for the Israel that we support, Jewish, democratic, and secure. Uh, we could talk about that, these issues in the region for a lot longer, but the final topic I wanted to address, and it's the big one, is Israel at 75. 
And as an exercise, I wanted us to take a step back and think out loud, because this is after all a podcast, uh, about Israel reaching this uh, this milestone birthday, uh, a diamond jubilee, it's called. So in the spirit of a bright, shining diamond, uh, but also acknowledging maybe the less bright and shiny aspects of a country we care so much about, uh, I wanted each of us, each of you, to give one area of pride or optimism or positivity for Israel at 75, and then one area of maybe concern, apprehension, negativity, or negative area, uh, as Israel reaches 75 and beyond. Uh, Shira, do you want to go first? Sure. Um, um Okay, I'll I'll start with the positive. I I do think that this this awakening of of I don't want to call it a camp because it's really the majority of of Israel, right? You have uh, you know you have seculars and you have religious of all of all um, uh, fr- fragrances and, and, <laughs> and currents, and you have you know you have you have from from Elat to 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 you know Rosh Hashanah and, and and all over the country you have you have people here that say no we we are we have more in common than divides us and we we really do want a jewish uh democratic and and i'd add also a secure israel which is by the way you know sort of the the top right this is the vision of 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 israel policy mm-hmm. um and you know in 2011 there were the socio economic largely protests by the way many of the protest movement are uh were involved in those protests um, when they were much younger. And there was Balfour, obviously, you know, the black flag. There were a few uh, rounds of protests, but this feels so much deeper. And I hope that, you know, at, at, on the 75th birthday of Israel, um, this 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 majority that, that for a long time has been really silent, um, uh, has found a voice and will 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 maintain this voice, right? That it doesn't fade fade away when 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 this legislation or another uh, uh, is removed off the agenda, and that it would eventually also lead to you know political participation and to will trickle down to the official things to to the leadership of of the country. Um, elections. It is, it is really. Elections, yeah, I mean, <laughs> elections, you know, there will be elections at the end of the day, but if people feel like uh, many people feel today that their elected officials do not represent them, uh, that is a problem. Um, so so, so I hope, um, and we've seen uh, declining uh, uh, voting rates, right, in Israel. This has been a trend, and, and I, I think we're seeing something opposite now. We're seeing real participation, real care. You know, I, I need to tell you, I know it's exotic for visitors from the U.S. Oh, we have to stop at the Kaplan protest, right, to be with Israel, Israel's history, doing as an exotic things. But, you know, now it's been 16 weeks. Mm-hmm. Every Saturday night going there and you live in Tel Aviv, but those not living in Tel Aviv and there's no public transportation until after Shabbat. So you need to find a way to get there. You need to, to ride, you need to walk, you need to, to, to drive, to pay a lot for parking or not find parking, to carry a flag. <laughs> you can get a, you know, a infection in your shoulder. I mean, it's a real story. Really? Um, so I think for a lot, yeah, yeah, <laughs> not, not, not my story, but other people's okay. stories. Um, so it is, um, it, 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 it's difficult and people do it. And I think this is, this is really a big, big, big positive thing. And, and hopefully it continues not in the protest movement, right. But it moves on sort of like to real life 
to decision-making processes, to, to deciding on the vision that Israel has to promote. Um, on the negative side, because I think, I hope, um, Michael will mention the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, mm-hmm. which we have not, not spoken about uh, today. Uh, very unusual, unusual for us. I'll speak about another issue. I think with all the beauty uh, that comes, um, that sort of radiates, shines through these protests now um, in Israel, all the beautiful Israel, we have to remember that Israel socioeconomically, the situation is not sustainable. Um, the two uh, top um, deciles, deciles, you see? Decimals? Uh, pay- yeah, that's a, a decile, the sort of like a percentiles, but it's not percent of deciles. The the top the top twenty percent of the of the economy. Right, the top echelon. Echelon, but they pay ninety two percent of income tax in this country. Ninety two percent. Okay, and those are not um, millionaires, right? When we're talking about the average income of a head of household in the uh, 90th percentile, is 19,000 shekels uh, uh, gross. This uh, counts to, help me, it's what, it's... uh, $5,000? $5,000? A month? $5,000. The cost of living here is outrageous. And there was um, uh, an interview with Professor Donny Ben-David, who is an Israeli economist, a very accomplished one. He's been warning for years, but now now everyone is willing to listen. Um, And the whole interview... uh, is full of numbers. I won't tell you the numbers, but there's one number that I think we should understand. And this, this number is 397, uh, 744. So approximately 400,000 people. And this is what, when you sum up uh, the members of the academic, um, um, senior academics in the uh, research universities in Israel, the physicians and the tech workers. And if you take out the the workers, the tech workers who are not uh, not in you know the market, those in marketing and in sales, you get to nine hundred uh, sorry three hundred thousand uh, people. And according to his calculations, the three hundred thousand people they basically um, upon their shoulders rest uh, Israel's uh, economic economics today, but also the future of this country. And there's no margin. It's enough that several of them decide that, you know, the future here is not bright for their children and they would leave or that lucrative conditions would seduce, you know, physicians elsewhere. It's enough that a few tens of thousands of them leave and Israel would lose, would lose its uh, academic power, would lose its physician, would lose its uh, um, uh, tech power. And, um if you look at, you know, the sort of everything this startup nation was able to achieve, it's despite this, right? It's not because of that. And long term, if you look here um, at the economy and the and the sectors who do not participate in the economy, the ultra-Orthodox uh, uh, population, mostly the men and the Israeli Arabs who get subpar um, education, you think this is 75 years, but... What's going to happen at 85? What's going to happen at 95? Something fundamental here in the priorities has 
to change. And this goes back to the beginning of our conversation. The legislation today and efforts have to be at education about giving people uh, core competencies to, to participate in the job market, um, to give them uh, skills to Im- improve labor productivity, uh, to uh, provide uh, infrastructure, right? Transportation, electricity, water, and none of that is happening. And I think this is very, very concerning. Yeah, um, I agree with all of that, Shira. Uh, Michael, positive, negative. So first, in addition to the uh, Jewish American Jewish Organization's acronym, acronyms quiz, I think we should also <laughs> add a quiz on math terms that none of us know, like decile <laughs> or, or, or rhombus or, you know. I have an undergrad in math. <laughs> <laughs> well, then you're you're definitely better than me. Um, but yes. I don't know how to say it in Hebrew, in English, with the right accent. <laughs> so, uh, so on the on the positive, I'll, I'll take a bit of a, a longer a longer term view, which is if we think about Israel's and Zionism's basic mission statement, you know, which is. Changing, changing the condition of Jews around the world, um, changing the condition of or, or solving for the problem of, of fundamental Jewish insecurity and, uh, and the absence of, of Jewish safety. I think by any, measure, by any measure, Israel has been phenomenally successful and it's only gotten more successful over time. Uh, that's really why Zionism, that's why Zionism became a thing. That's, that's why, it's why the state of Israel was necessary. And for all of the all the various all the various issues and all the various ways in which you know we can and, and often do critique Israel, if we just look at this one thing, um, it's hugely successful, and that wasn't a given. It certainly it certainly wasn't a given at the beginning. It wasn't a given ten years in or, or twenty years in or even forty years in, and I think now we're sitting here at a point where nobody questions the ability of Israel to provide for safety and security of Jews, certainly inside Israel, and, uh, and, and that Jews around the world have the ability to immigrate to Israel and, and enjoy this condition of, of Jewish safety. Uh, and it's not just about physical safety. It's about the ability to be in a Jewish state and, and be, be free of discrimination and um, be free of, of all sorts of things that have come along with what it means to be a Jew for 2,000 years. So there's no question looking at Israel 75 years later that it's it's accomplished its core mission. And uh, I think that's that's an amazing thing. And it isn't something that, that was in any way guaranteed at the beginning of the Zionist project or when Israel was founded in 1948. On the negative side, um, I wasn't going to mention uh, I wasn't going to mention the Israeli-Palestinian issue, although I will briefly because um, for, for 19 of these 75 years, Certainly, there was an Israeli-Palestinian issue, but it was a smaller one, uh, a smaller one than than the one that's been in place for fifty-six years. And to have gone this long without not only coming to some sort of resolution, but uh, but arguably the issue getting worse and worse and worse, till we're at the point where we are now, that's not great, <laughs> to say the least. And, um, you know, we think about the challenges that Israel faces. Uh, I think that's got to be that's got to be at the top. But um, I, I think what I uh, what I what I wanted to point to was Israel. Seventy five years later, even though it's a Jewish state and it's the only Jewish state, still hasn't really worked out what it means to to be a Jewish state. And maybe that should have been the easiest thing to do. 
because it's it's the one unifying factor. Uh, of course, not everybody in Israel is Jewish. You know, uh, one out of every somewhere between one out of every four and one out of every five Israelis is, is not Jewish. But for the Jews inside of Israel, what it means to be a Jewish state still has not been worked out. And I think in uh, in a lot of ways that's surprising. You you still have these deep divides um, over. What, what what Judaism is and what it should be and to what extent the state should should run on precepts with Judaism. You have uh, deep divides that are playing out, are going to play out this month uh, in, in real ways and maybe will even lead to the fall of the government between the Haredim and everybody else in terms of Haredi participation in the IDF and what it means to uh, for everybody to to shoulder the burden of service in equal ways, um, you know there are of course still very deep divides and questions about having a Jewish state and what that means in terms of is it just Jews who live there or is it Jews around the world, and so I, I'm not sure that these questions you know all the time we hear these questions about. Uh, Jewish and democratic and, and the trade-offs between these two things. And is it possible to have a Jewish state that's that's a democracy? Is it possible to have a democracy that's a Jewish state? Those are really hard. But I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about one aspect of it. What, what does it mean to just have a Jewish state and sort of the internal Jewish issues themselves? And that still hasn't been worked out. Not only has it not been worked out, I think that uh, in some ways Israel is maybe even farther away now than it was in 1948 from working these issues out. And so that's something that um, I hope 75 years from now when we're uh, maybe, <laughs> maybe maybe not the three of us, but when <laughs> somebody is celebrating Israel's 150th birthday, although, you know, who knows? Jared Kushner apparently thinks he's going to live forever, so maybe we will, as, we will too. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, 75 years from now when Israel is celebrating its 150th birthday, I hope that this the, these questions of – Judaism inside a Jewish state um, and Judaism outside a Jewish state as it pertains to the Jewish state will be a bit more settled than they are today. Well said, and I look forward to discussing those issues uh, in 75 years on the Israel Policy Pod, uh, <laughs> which, will, which will still be going strong. Uh, all all of our consciousness, our, our consciousness, consciousness is whatever word that is. Like, <laughs> I can't speak English either, but uh, our collective consciousness will, will live on in the metaverse, I suppose, by that point. Yeah, and just an AI-generated uh, bot that will kind of reproduce uh, Michael Shira and Neri yeah. uh, talking points. Yeah. Love it. Uh, uh, so I'll just conclude with my positive and my negative. Uh, and I'll actually start with the negative first, and I'll pick up on uh, Michael where you left off in terms of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict uh, that we we can and should talk about kind of deeper lying issues in terms of uh, Haredi integration into Israeli society and um, the role or not of Judaism in public life, uh, economic issues, really, really important for people either choosing to stay here in Israel or leaving. Uh, but for me, uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict uh, is is the one and only existential issue and threat facing, facing Israel. And uh, as we all know, uh, it has not been dealt with and is actually, like you said, Michael, in many respects, getting worse getting worse. And it was interesting for me, just uh, as I was thinking about this uh, this exercise before we started recording, that 75, like every birthday, especially round numbers, it's a fairly arbitrary number. But it does focus the mind in terms of Israel's trajectory from, say, 1948 until the present. And it was interesting for me to look at uh, the past 75 years, seven and a half decades, in 20-year increments. 
So really we had basically 1948 to 1967. And then from 1967, obviously the, uh, the conquest and occupation of uh, the West Bank and Gaza and on the occupied territories, but basically from 1967 to 1987, right? And 87 was the uh, eruption of the first intifada and really uh, the pushback by the Palestinian national movement against the occupation of 67. Uh, and then subsequently, that was what uh, focused Israeli political minds uh, on uh, some kind of peace process in Oslo in the 90s. But basically from 87 to around 2005 to 2007, which was the disengagement from Gaza in 2005, and then the Hamas takeover of Gaza in 2007. So that was the 20-year period from the first intifada until then. And really we're living with the kind of fallout, this post Oslo period, post Gaza disengagement, post Hamas takeover of Gaza period. And also by the way, uh, continued uh, rule by Mahmoud Abbas of the Palestinian authority uh, talking, you know, he, he will definitely be on the Israel policy pod 75 years from now. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, but no, but, but if you think about basically that period from say 2007 and we can even take it to 2009 when Bibi Netanyahu made his comeback to the prime ministership. So we're coming basically to the tail end of this 20-year period uh, from 2005, nine period up until basically now in the coming years. And so to my mind, uh, we're, we're going to be facing a, a very significant shift in the Israeli-Palestinian arena, uh, likely very soon, very soon. And so uh, what that will look like, it's, it's open to speculation. Uh, I imagine there will be a, another eruption, another eruption that uh, hopefully will not be as violent, definitely the second intifada, but uh, will almost certainly have to focus Israeli minds, uh, both the leadership and the public, about what to do and how to resolve the conflict. Uh, and so, you know, 75, again, it's an, it's an arbitrary number, but... Uh, but I think it does it does uh, uh, emphasize the fact that it uh, we're we're likely nearing uh, another shift in the conflict, and so uh, and by the way, arguably not not a very positive shift. Um, you know, again, a government could be elected in the coming year or so, and could prove me wrong, but that's likely a tall order. So that's just in terms of of negative, and uh, and we should say you know the implications for Israel, as we all know of not resolving the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is uh, a clear and present and immediate or not threat to Israel as a Jewish and democratic and secure state, as we mentioned earlier. So that's uh, in terms of negativity. And uh, on the positive side of the ledger, uh, this isn't kind of a specific event, but uh, just by way of anecdote, uh, over the past a few days, I've had to go back and forth between my apartment in kind of north central Tel Aviv, the old north of Tel Aviv for people who know it, and Jaffa. And given all the construction in Tel Aviv, uh, Tel Aviv, the entire city is a construction site these days, uh, the best and fastest way is via scooter on the boardwalk uh, of Tel Aviv, up and down the, the boardwalk. And so basically from north to south and into Jaffa, uh, there's a big park on the Mediterranean. And this park, especially over the past weekend, which was the end of Ramadan and Eid al-Fitr, uh, you had many, many hundreds and thousands of uh, Arab Palestinian families from Jaffa and then from all over, by the way, from all over the country and uh, Jerusalem as well, uh, cooking, you know, from the, after the breakfast and, and just uh, enjoying their holiday 
uh, overlooking the Mediterranean. And especially on Saturday night, uh, Saturday afternoon and then into the evening, uh, there were a lot of Arab families there and also a lot of Jewish families all up and down the boardwalk, uh, especially in the, uh, in the park uh, at the entrance to, to Jaffa. And it was striking to me how everyone was kind of coexisting very peacefully. Uh, there was, you know, some police presence, but very, very minimal. Uh, and everyone was just kind of enjoying the, the very nice spring weather in Israel, uh, enjoying the, uh, the sunset views and the Mediterranean breeze. And it all seemed very peaceful and tranquil. And, uh, you know, so my hope in terms of the positive side of Israel is that uh, that aspect of Israel is comes more to the fore and, and is, uh, I guess, more institutionalized. Uh, and that, you know, despite the conflict, really, I guess this is my point, that despite the conflict and despite the politics, that these moments of sanity and normalcy and peace, peace uh, is actually still possible uh, in Israel. And the Israel, for all its flaws, and there are many, many flaws, uh, a lot of times does allow for that space. Um, so that's just my positive note. Any, 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 any final comments, thoughts? Harry, I, I like, I like, I like your, I like your breakdown. Even, even if its conclusions are, uh, are, are difficult, I think you, you win the segment. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, the state of Israel wins the segment. We're celebrating seventy-five years, <laughs> uh, but, um, but yeah, that was kind of the first thing that that came to mind uh, in terms of kind of thinking about this. Um, so, uh, with that, Shira, Michael. We're, we're over an hour, uh, so I'll let you both get back to your uh, days and evenings, um, but to be continued, of course. But thank you so much, as always. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Nari. Thanks, Shira. Thanks to both of you. Likewise. Take care. Okay. Thanks again to Michael Coplo and Shira Efron, as always, for their generous time and insights. Also, special thanks to our producer, Jacob Gilman, and to all of you who support Israel Policy Forum's work, including this podcast. You know who you are. Just remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave a rating and comment on your podcast apps. That always helps. And as always, thank you for listening. And oh, by the way, happy birthday, Israel. Israel.